Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop talks about the recent USCCB meeting, including a breakdown of the Eucharistic Consistency document. Hear more about what happened, what it means, and how it will play out moving forward. Then it's on to two servants of God whose cause for canonization was also discussed at the meeting. Their lives could be made into Hollywood movies. Find out about Father Joseph Lafleur and Brother Marinus LaRue this week. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop. Thank you for joining us, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. How are you today? I'm doing well. So I've got to ask, do you prefer your meetings in person or over Zoom? In person. Okay. I mean, sometimes, you know, I... You know, when we have Zoom meetings, especially like USCCB or whatever, right. or some other things, you know, it's kind of nice not having to spend time and travel. You know, uh. that's a convenient thing. But there is something lost when you're not in person chatting with people and seeing them in person. Yeah. And so specifically with the USCCB meeting that happened uh, well, a week and a half ago now, there's, I imagine, a different dynamic, too, in how you have these conversations over Zoom rather than in person. And, you know, you can't really see everybody. You can't really judge the crowd that much as how they're reacting. It's more of, you know, you see a few people on a screen or something. Like, I mean, you can't see everybody at one time, can you? No, no. During the meeting, I just was able to see the person who was talking. Okay. And so when you're talking, what do you see? When I'm talking, I see myself, and I try not to, you know, that that can be distracting. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I usually put my eyes down a little bit so uh-huh. I'm not staring at myself talking. <laughs> so for those that haven't followed the news, you were in the news because you were the one presenting the, uh, I guess it was an outline for this potential document to be written. And we Correct. talked about it uh, two episodes ago, so people two weeks ago can hear you know, what the preparation that went into that. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, maybe, maybe just a refresher on what you were presenting and how things went? Yes, it's a teaching document on the Holy Eucharist. And the U.S. Bishop's strategic plan for these three years is a plan that's very much centered on the Eucharist and also on a Eucharistic revival in the church, which is very exciting. Now, we, as a doctrine committee, have been entrusted with the task of preparing a document that that is to help the faithful uh, to have a deeper understanding of the mystery of the Eucharist and its centrality in our life. And we're following an outline that Pope Benedict XVI used in his apostolic exhortation, the sacrament of charity, sacramentum caritatis, which is a really beautiful document. It came after the Synod of Bishops on the Eucharist back in 2005. And there's three parts to that document, and we've adopted that those topics, those three topics, I guess you could say, as kind of the framework for our document. The first is the Eucharist as a mystery to be believed. Second, the Eucharist as a mystery to be celebrated. And the third part is 
the Eucharist as a mystery to be lived. In other words, we're called to live what we receive, to live in a way that's consistent with the Eucharist as the sacrifice of Christ, you know, consistent with the self-giving love of Jesus that's made present in the sacrifice of the Mass. And so we should not privatize the Eucharist. In other words, separate our celebration and reception of Holy Communion from our responsibility to live in communion with the church and to live lives that are consistent with the deep meaning of the Eucharist as the sacrament of charity. Thankfully, the the great majority of bishops, I forget the exact vote, but I think it was three-fourths, approved that our doctrine committee proceed with drafting the document. So now we continue with the process. We're getting started on writing a draft. A lot of the bishops recommended that we have we receive input, that the doctrine committee should receive input from regional meetings of bishops throughout the country. So, so that will be happening in the summer. And once we have the draft, all the, after all that, uh, we receive the input from the regional meetings and we have a draft, then we'll uh, share that with other USCCB committees to receive their suggestions, observations, and then we also send the draft to the Vatican Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. So in, so there's a wide consultation, and I think that will be helpful. Mm-hmm. And I'm praying for the guidance of the Holy Spirit in all of this, and I hope the listeners on Redeemer Radio invite you to pray for us as we move forward. For sure. Those three things that you mentioned, I think if I can maybe take a stab at breaking that down, because it sounds really interesting. So we believe in the Eucharist, and that leads us to want to receive it or calls us to receive it. And if we don't believe it, then we shouldn't receive the Eucharist. If we don't believe that this is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, we shouldn't be receiving it. Uh, But also, if we do believe that, then we should want to do anything possible to receive that. If it means going through RCIA, if it means going to confession, whatever, we need to do to get our souls in the right place to be able to receive that. These kind of go hand in hand. And then after receiving that, we have to then go live that. Like if we have the true presence of Jesus inside of us, then that by necessity, we, we have to, that has to change us and has to motivate us to share that with others and, and to live like Jesus lived. You're absolutely correct, Kyle. I think you've expressed it very well. You know, there was an effort. Uh, some wanted to drop that third part. Uh, really? Yes, you know, which is the part about Eucharistic consistency, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Eucharist as a mystery to be lived. That means that we're called to live lives of Eucharistic consistency. And I was asked if I would be open to keeping that part out because that has some, that's where the controversy right. all over the place has been, especially in the media, because, you know, all the debate about, uh, Catholic political leaders who are pro-choice receiving the Eucharist, etc. And my response was, no, we cannot drop that third part. We can't remove that because we need to present the full teaching on the Eucharist and not to talk about how, you know, there's a responsibility to live what we receive. It wouldn't be complete that, you know, we are called to Eucharistic consistency. And therefore, there's some discipline in the church. And this has been part of the church's tradition, you know, for 2,000 years, going back to St. Paul, 
that we've had discipline about the reception of of Holy Communion, and that's in the the present code of canon law, canons nine fifteen and nine sixteen. Canon nine sixteen. There's not a lot of debate about that. You know the necessity of being in a state of grace to receive Holy Communion, but Canon nine fifteen is where the debate is, and that regards those who are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. Mm -hmm. But I think it is important to go back to what St. Paul wrote in his first letter to the Corinthians. It's a famous passage. It's chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, verses 27 to 29. And I'll just quote that for our listeners. St. Paul wrote, "'Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. A person should examine himself, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. You know, this is part of giving the honor to Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament, that if if we are not in the state of grace, we should not receive Holy Communion. We should go to confession. We need to repent, receive God's forgiveness, and then we're able to receive. That's basically Canon 916. Canon 915 is more on the objective level, not the level of conscience, which is really in 916, but more on the objective level, where it says that people who are excommunicated or under interdict or who publicly who obstinately persist in manifest grave sin uh, shouldn't be admitted to holy communion and that's on the objective level i mean because what happens if someone is is living very publicly and and speaking against fundamental teachings of the church or acting against those and they're obstinate in it. You know, they're not even after they've been counseled and pastorally guided and they continue. That's a problem, you know, because we have to be in communion with, uh, with the church, the mystical body of Christ, the Eucharistic body of Christ. They go together. So, and this is where Eucharistic consistency comes in. We're, we must be properly disposed to receive the Eucharist. And that means our communion with the church, our assent to the deposit of faith that's contained in sacred scripture and tradition. You know, what the apostles taught and entrusted to the church. So we will talk about that. I mean, it's it's in that third part, the Eucharist, a mystery to be lived, where we will talk about Eucharistic consistency and how it involves our communion with the mystical body of Christ, the church, because the Eucharistic body of Christ builds up that communion of the mystical body. So it's, it's, I'm looking forward, actually, um, to our working together in, in writing, writing this document. And you did an interview with OSV that we can link in the show notes for this if people want to learn more about what happened there. Um, this wasn't the only thing that you guys discussed. It might be the only thing that, that people see or hear about sometimes in the news. But uh, can you maybe highlight some of the other things that happened during the meeting? Yes. I mean, you're right. This was the principal 
uh, topic. But connected to it, Bishop Cousins, a wonderful bishop, he's an auxiliary bishop of Minneapolis, St. Paul, did a presentation on how we're going to do this Eucharistic revival. Mm. And uh, I'm on that group, too, and uh, I'm really excited about it. And there will be a diocesan phase, then a parish phase, and then a national celebration, which goes beyond what we've been talking about in our document. But the document is kind of like a, a doctrinal foundation for this Eucharistic revival. So that was um, part of the meeting that I thought was was important. Uh, when when were, would this Eucharistic revival take place? Is this something that we're looking at like 2021, 2022? 2022, beginning with the diocesan phase. I don't have the exact dates in front of me, but it's like a year where where there's going to be a lot of diocesan activities and then, and programming and then move to the parishes and then move to the national. Okay. So it's, it's like 2022 to 2024, I think. Oh, wow. Okay. Great. You know what I uh, found interesting at the meeting too? They, uh, there were two votes on causes for, to people to be advanced on the local level to to the cause of canonization because uh, the church requires that the Episcopal conference, that a bishop consults an Epis- uh, Episcopal conference when he petitions to have a candidate, you know, studied in order to to move forward in the cause of, of beatification and canonization. Mm-hmm. And this was interesting because I had never heard of these two uh, individuals until we received information a couple weeks before the USCCB meeting. And I thought, wow, these are really very interesting. One was a uh, diocesan priest from the Diocese of Lafayette in Louisiana. His name was Joseph Verbis Lafleur. And um, he was born in 1912. I found it interesting. He was from this small town in Louisiana. And from a very early age, he, uh, he had the, um, an interest uh, in the priesthood. And so he went to the seminary, et cetera. I don't want to go through all the details. But Father Lafleur was ordained in 1938 and served in a parish. And it wasn't long after that he joined the Army Air Corps as a chaplain in 1941. So this was about six months before the U.S. became involved in World War II. And he really felt this call to to serve the men in the military. And he was assigned to a unit in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And then later, he was assigned to a bombardment group and sent to Clark Field. I don't know if you remember, Clark Field is about 60 miles from Manila in the Philippine Islands. So so this is kind of really dangerous war area because um, Clark Field was attacked a week after, uh, well, no, a day after the attack on Pearl Harbor. So this was a U.S. base in the Philippines, and it was heavily attacked just a day after the attack on Pearl Harbor, and he was there. And many American soldiers were killed, and aircraft were destroyed. Father LaFleur was there giving absolution to the wounded and the dying, helping the doctors, administering medical care. He was dodging bullets and shrapnel, and he got a Purple Heart and Bronze Star and all that later. After this attack, the... um, 
this 19th bombardment group was ordered to be transferred. And Father LaFleur was one of those who was evacuated by ship. And then Japanese planes attacked again. And um, he was there and he saw an officer wounded on deck and he crawled over and dragged him to safety. And the ship neared a, a small island and the soldiers began to jump into lifeboats to get away. And, and Father LaFleur wouldn't leave until he was sure that all the men were in the boats and he helped them all to board. And then he himself jumped into the water and uh, swam to one of the small boats. Eventually they fell into enemy hands anyhow, and he became a prisoner of war. You know, he's a priest. So as a prisoner of war, when he had had bread and wine, he would offer the mass for the soldiers. And, uh, and he'd give away like everything to them. He, he gave away his eyeglasses. He gave away his watch. He did that to get medicine for the men. And he would not eat very much so he could share it with the, the little food that they got, which was basically soup and rice with sick and wounded soldiers. I mean, he, he was so generous and, and the, the men loved him because he was so self-giving. And he, uh, he even built a chapel uh, with his own hands, they say. In any event, as time went on, one of the Japanese uh, soldiers announced to the prisoners that uh, 750 of them would be chosen to go out and clear uh, a jungle on the island. And um, Father LaFleur wasn't chosen, but he volunteered to trade places with one because he didn't want these men who were, you know, going out into the jungle, it would be very difficult to be without a priest. Hmm. So he became part of that work detail. And then there were new orders and they were relocated again. Again, these are 750 men, they're hungry, they're overworked. They were crammed into this Japanese ship that a few weeks later was torpedoed by an American submarine. Wow. Now, they would have been trapped unable to escape, but one of the Japanese officers opened the door of the hold where the, the Americans were and said, come out, come out. And they said, Father, hurry. Well, of course they, they did, but Father LaFleur refused. He stood back and helped the others to get through the door. So many were saved. They swam, were able to swim to shore, but there were also those who died. Uh, only 80 actually made it safely to land. Some of them were, were shot on deck. So that's how he died. He, he was not one who made it uh, safely to land. He was there helping men to get out of the hold. And um, grenades were being thrown into the ship's hold by some of the Japanese sailors, too. And I'm not quite sure how he was killed, but, but he was killed at that time. So I think it's just a very inspiring story. Yeah, I feel like a movie should be made about it. That sounds like yeah. a very heroic man and a great example. So Father Joseph LaFleur would now be servant of God? That's correct. It, is it official now or the USCCB you know, approves? I, th I, think, I think he's, you know, I'm not positive. I think he's already a servant of God. Okay. Um, but he's not venerable yet. So was your vote to advance him to venerable or? No, no, it's a, a, uh, it's a vote to show support for the bishop to, to move forward with the cause. Okay, great. All right, and you said there were two, right? There's 
also a brother. Yeah, and I, I won't be as long on this one. This I also found very, very interesting. Um, this was a professed brother, a Benedictine brother by the name of Marinus, Brother Marinus LaRue. I think his name was Leonard uh, before he became a religious. Okay. But he was the captain of a merchant marine ship. Okay, this is before he was a religious, okay? Mm -hmm. This is earlier in his life. This is back in 1950. He was, this, uh, he was born in 1914, but in 1950, he's, he was captain of a merchant marine ship. And during the Korean War, it was in uh, 1950, the, the North Koreans were fleeing the incoming Chinese soldiers. And uh, Leonard LaRue was the captain of this ship in the water, and he was asked to take refu these refugees, these North Koreans who were fleeing the Chinese, to ex accept them on, on the ship. And, and, and he did. He did not hesitate. Hmm. He saw these were refugees. They were poor. They were, you know, families. They were children. And so he did all he could, and actually 14,000 refugees were taken on board the small ship. 14,000? That's right. That's right. <laughs> and the ship set sail into the Sea of Japan. Now, it was very dangerous because there were mines in the waters, too. Um, <laughs> and they reached their destination, interestingly, on Christmas Eve. Um, and uh, when they got to their destination, there wasn't any room. So they weren't able to get off, and they were directed to another island where they were able to get off. So it was like a 450-mile trip that Captain LaRue was, was trying to help these refugees. You know, you can think of it as like a Christmas voyage. Um, and it wasn't long after that that he left the Merchant Marines and entered a Benedictine Abbey in New Jersey. And that's where he took the name Brother Marinus. For 46 years, he lived in the monastery, living a very simple life. He did manual tasks. He would wash the dishes. He'd work in the gift shop, that kind of thing. So he had this amazing career where he was so heroic in saving all these thousands of Koreans. And it wasn't long after that that he entered a monastery and lived a very holy life for 46 years as a monk. What I also found fascinating was that there's over a million Koreans today. Think about this. Over a million Koreans today who are descendants from those refugees hmm. that he saved. Wow. Including the current president of South Korea is a descendant of those refugees. That's amazing. So I think his example of virtue could inspire merchant marines and because I don't know of any saint who was, you know, was uh, a mariner, you know, right. um, or at least anyone that's contemporary. Yeah. I, I mean, died in 2001. So when you get the two of these, you said a couple weeks before the meeting, you get what, like, biographies of them is there yes yes short biographies yep and so then is there any debate about it or are you just kind of all in favor do they give a little 
They give an opportunity for any bishop who would want to speak. And what happened is a few spoke and said how much they they supported them. For example, some of them were directly connected. Like there were a couple who spoke about Brother Marinus LaRue because they they're from that area and they knew about him or they might have, I, I forget, I think maybe one of them uh, had met him. And, you know, so you'll get those kinds right. of comments. All right. So both of those went through and they're on their path to sainthood. That's correct. At least the initial mm-hmm. initial part. Yep. Anything else from the conference? Any? Do you have the downtime where you're just kind of chatting? Because at a regular conference, you'd have lunches and stuff where you're just chatting with other bishops. And do you, is it does that happen over a Zoom call? I mean, they give a, a a break, like 15 minutes at one point, but but no, there's no opportunity yeah. for socializing. Yeah. Uh, some of the things were more standard. We we approved, you know, some translations because there continues to be liturgical translations, especially with the revision of the Liturgy of the Hours, which of course is a multi-year project. So, so we approved some more parts of the uh, those translations as well as the rite of penance. Yeah, there were other issues too, but I think you'll see a roundup. You know, in last week's uh, Today's Catholic, if people want to check it out, there's a roundup of the USCCB meeting. What What is changing about the rite of penance? No, it's just translation. Okay. It's just making sure, because there's been this process for many years of, of revising all the liturgical texts. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, several years ago, the big thing, of course, was the Mass. Right. Trying to be more faithful to the Latin translation, to the Latin original. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so this is continues with all the rituals, all the sacramental rites of the church. Okay. Well, like we mentioned, the article from OSV will be linked in the description for the show. You can find that at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Uh, also, we'll have a link to the Today's Catholic article that you mentioned. And also, you can find past episodes of the show there, RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can submit your questions there or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260 260- 436-9598. We have questions about the pontifical secret, evolution, and we'll play a fun game coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop who has offered to answer questions that listeners have submitted. And our first question is one we get frequently. I feel like uh, there's been several different episodes where we've talked about this. How do Catholics reconcile believing in evolution and creation at the same time? And I think the fact that this question keeps coming up is this is something that a lot of people are struggling with or or having conversations with others and like, I don't know how to explain this to them. And I know what I, we can put links to past episodes where we've talked about this, but I think one of the questions that this leads into is, 
why do we take some parts of the Bible literally and others we don't? So as Catholics, whenever Jesus says, this is my body, we think that he was literal there. He wasn't speaking symbolically. We know that. We're not, it's not, we just think that. But whenever we hear the story of creation happened in six 24-hour periods, we say that's not literally speaking. So why why is this uh, what some might see as a discrepancy between how we interpret the Bible? Good question. I mean, I have spoken a lot about the compatibility of creation and evolution. Pope St. John Paul II, Pope Benedict, there's been so much for decades on, on, uh, on this. So that's good if you could show some links to past episodes. Um, but the question has to do with the Bible. I mean, and I think we've talked about this as well. There's various literary genres in the Bible. So, you know, some of the literary genres include um, stories that, that, that convey a religious message, like the story of creation. It's not scientific. Uh, it's not a scientific work. It's a, a story to com- that communicates important religious truths. So it's important when you look at a particular part of the Bible, you understand what you're reading in the sense of, well, what is the literary genre here? Mm-hmm. Is it a story or is it a historical text? And of course, when it comes to the New Testament, we believe in the historicity of the Gospels, the words of Jesus that have come down to us. Of course, we have the words of Jesus. We have that were passed down through oral tradition and eventually put in writing by the evangelists, the gospel writers. So that's a different literary genre, different development. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I hope that helps. And obviously, when we're talking about the life and teachings of Jesus, we're talking about something that that occurred 2000 years ago mm-hmm. we're talking about the beginning of the Euchar- beginning of the universe we're talking about millions of years ago right well and then even within the gospels there are parables and there are Correct. actual things that happened and so Correct. being able to recognize the difference i mean both are i guess to to share theological truths with us to you know how we're to live our lives and things. And then I guess going back to Genesis, even the first chapter and the second chapter, you have two different stories of creation that kind of contradict each other. One man is created at the end and the other man is created. And then the animals are created after him. And so you would say, well, which one of these is the the actual one? Well, they're both to teach us something, you know, and I think to get right. caught up in, in that as a, like you said, it's not a it's not a history textbook. It's not a scientific textbook. It's a it's a theology lesson. Exactly. All right. This next question I really like because I had wanted to follow up with this question, but I don't think we had time because the question is on the recent episode about changes in canon law, you mentioned something about the pontifical secret. Can you explain what that means? I think it was something you just kind of mentioned and went over and it's like, oh, I definitely want to come back to that. Yes, um, the pontifical secret or papal secrecy, it's a code of confidentiality. And when they talk about a pontifical secret, this is even greater than ordinary confidentiality. And I was trying to think of how to explain this. And I think the best analogy I can use is with the government. Yes, there are certain things that are confidential. But at times, there's things are classified. 
mm-hmm. you know, classified secrets that cannot be revealed because it could put people in danger. You know, some of the diplomatic and things that have to do with national security and all that, it's kind of like top secret, okay? Mm-hmm. It's, it's um, they're classified information that cannot be shared with the public. And I think that's kind of like the pontifical secret. It's kind of like classified information. It's, it's beyond normal confidentiality. And there can be an ecclesiastical penalty if someone violates the pontifical secret. Let me give you an example where yeah. it's, that I experience. When I am consulted about uh, a potential bishop, like a priest that the Vatican is considering or to recommend to the Pope to be named a bishop, that consultation is under the pontifical secret. Okay. I am not allowed to like say, Kyle, so-and-so is being considered to be a bishop. What do you uh, think? You yeah. know, I can't say anything. I can only communicate my views confidentially to the apostolic nuncio. There are other things, um, you know, especially in the in the diplomatic corps, kind of like in the U.S. government, where where there's um, sensitive issues that you know to protect people, they're kept secret, and even under the pontifical secret. So hopefully that's that's helpful. I think this made the news because in the past, the pontifical secret was in effect when there were accusations and trials that involved the abuse of minors. And there was a problem by ha- about having that under pontifical secrecy. Mm-hmm. In other words, obviously, these are confidential matters, but to have it under the pontifical secret, that's a problem because what about, you know, reporting to civil authorities? Right. That should be done. The church has said any of these accusations, we're going to report to civil authorities. You know, sometimes that pontifical secret got in the way of that. Mm. Um, actually, the U.S. bishops with the Charter for the Protection of Children and Young People, we uh, required that credible allegations of sexual abuse of children be reported to legal authorities. Mm -hmm. And um, even though it had been under the pontifical secret, the Vatican approved that back in 2002. But just a couple years ago, Pope Francis removed or excluded from the pontifical secret accusations, trials, and decisions in investigating sexual abuse of minors. Um, So that is no longer under the pontifical secret, although there is a degree of confidentiality in those cases, but it's not under the pontifical secret anymore. And of course, you have confidentiality to protect both the victim and the accused. Um, But reporting to legal authorities, to civil authorities, must be done. So there's some things that I imagine are obviously part of this pontifical secret, like you said, an inquiry about a potential bishop or something. There might be things that are obviously not part of that. When it falls in the gray line, is there like a a code of, hey, uh, this falls under the pontifical secret? Is like a disclaimer before you have a conversation or have a, a letter? Is there a, a stamp? Is it Does it come in a special envelope with pontifical secret written on the outside or anything like that? 
Yeah, the, when it comes to consultations about bishops, it comes in a sealed envelope inside another sealed envelope, and it does say on it, pontifical secret. Really? And, and violating it can lead to um, can lead to a penalty. Okay. N- not excluding excommunication. I think that's my only real experience of the pontifical secret personally, although I think there are materials covered by the pontifical secret, like diplomatic communications between various nunciatures of the Vatican around the world and things like that, private information. So, yeah, it's it's just this level of stricter confidentiality. Yeah. Do they ever have a self-destruct sequence? Like after you read it, it's going to self-destruct in 10 seconds kind of thing? Well, I, I have to destroy the... Um, I do have to either send back or, or shred the stuff that I write about uh, huh. the, in the consultation for candidates for bishop yeah that's fascinating like i can't keep it in a file that someone could could come across you know yeah all right our next question do you have any summer vacation plans yes um boy i need a vacation kyle i've been (laughs) without a vacation for a long time i'm gonna be visiting uh well i have uh my youngest niece's wedding coming up in Washington, D.C., so I'll have a few days with my family then, and then yeah. I'm hoping to spend a week with with friends later in the summer. It's hard to get away. You yeah. know, I, I noticed that um, I remember taking vacations often in, in August. Uh, that was kind of a typical vacation month, but not anymore, you know, because yeah. schools start early. A lot of things start up. I kind of miss that August period. Now, I, I think the only month of the year where things lighten up for me on my schedule is July. And usually not until, you know, the 4th of July. Even June's busy. I, I long for those years when we had a real, uh, well, maybe some people still do, but that Memorial Day to Labor Day period where it would be real relaxing and yeah. you could go on a few weeks vacation. And But I do need to, I think it's good for our health to, uh-huh. to get a little time away. So so I'm hoping to get two weeks, uh, you know, total this summer to, to just relax and maybe get some exercise, which I need, um, be with family and friends. That's That's my hope. Uh, well, if my opinion accounts for anything, then uh, I would like to suggest that you do have that two weeks. Thank you, Kyle. Yep. Uh, whoever I need to talk to, just let me know. I'll I'll make it well, happen. Well, could you tell people not to like be emailing me and texting me during that time so I don't get t- get caught back into work? Yeah. yeah just <laughs> just leave your phone at home when you go to DC. You know, just... I would love to do that. <laughs> What do you do? I mean, that's the hard thing today. You know, yeah. like I remember, you know, the, all the social communications, it's hard to get, it's hard to escape. Right. Uh, do you get to spend any time at Lake Week with the seminarians? I always go for a day. Uh-huh. So I'll be spending a day. I always have mass with them and then have a dinner with them. And uh, I'll never forget. It was great last summer, but remember, I ended up having to go in quarantine after. Oh, I was that's with right. Them yeah, because some of them had COVID, right. so we don't have to worry about that this year. Yeah, uh, but I look forward to that. I forget the date, but I'll be with them for a day. We'll have mass at St. Martin's in Syracuse, and then we go back to the Knoll Hall on Lake Wawasee and just enjoy it. Have have a a cookout and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be good because the guys who are the seminarians who have been down in Guatemala immersed in Spanish and seminarians who've been in Omaha for the uh, 
that spiritual summer that I like them to have yeah. before they start theology. I haven't gotten to see them, so it'll be nice to see them at Lake Week. Good. All right, and we ran out of time for this during our last episode, but thought we could do a quick game of overrated or underrated. So I'll say something. You say if you think that it's overrated or underrated, okay? Okay, this sounds fun. Yeah, there's, I'm, there's no I'm right or wrong I'm curious what you're going to be asking, but hopefully I can... <laughs> there's no right or wrong answer to this? No, no, no. And oh, okay. I'm even just thinking about this, is like, are we talking about, is it overrated or underrated within Catholics or in the world? I don't know. It's, it's open to interpretation. So okay. first one is fasting, overrated or underrated? Underrated. Okay. Parish secretaries. Underrated. They're so important. <laughs> right? Oh, my goodness. They're, I love our, uh, and appreciate our parish secretaries so much. Their work is underrated. I, them and the, uh, the school secretaries. Man, our Catholic schools. Yeah, exactly. School secretaries, too. All right. Offertory envelopes. I don't know. I mean, I th- what if you're giving online? See, that's, that's, that's us. Yeah. I, was, I need to tell the parish to stop sending us envelopes. It's just a waste of money right at this point. Like, yeah. we, we donate. So I don't money. think I can answer that as underrated or overrated. Okay. Maybe properly rated. Well, how, about, how, how, uh, how about making a sacrificial gift to your parish? There I would you say go. That's, that's, that's underrated. underrated. <laughs> good, good. What about parish websites? Underrated. I mean, I, I like to see really beautiful, attractive parish websites. I think it's a good means of communication. So I think they're underrated. All right. And people should check them out more often. Yeah. yeah. A Catholic education. Underrated because, oh, wow, I am so committed to our Catholic schools. I believe in the, the value of Catholic education. Um, so I think generally they're underrated because it's an excellent uh Formation in the faith and and very good academics and et cetera. All right. Athletics. Wow. I love sports, but I think it's overrated in our culture. I think, I mean, when you just look at salaries that professional athletes get and things like that and how this is a multi-billionaire business now, I think, I think it's overrated. And I say that as a sports fan. Yeah. <laughs> what about organs? And by that, I mean the musical instrument, not like our bodily organs. But uh, I would say underrated. You know, I think especially pipe organs. Um, the church has a preference for the use of organ at lit- organs at liturgies. And, and even some places they may not be able to, but um, there's something about the organ that I, I think they're underrated. Okay. What about olives? <laughs> well, I'd say in my life, they're overrated, but in most <laughs> people's lives, they're underrated. Okay. <laughs> uh, oh. Listeners may not know what we're talking about, but maybe some who've heard in the past that I love olives. Yeah. That's, the, that's my Greek ancestry. Yeah. Uh, electric cars. You know, I never thought about that. Um I'd say underrated. I mean, they're obviously good for the environment, so uh-huh. I'd say underrated. Okay. Deacons. Uh, I, I think they're underrated. I mean, our uh, deacons and their ministry is is often quiet and not in the limelight, yet it's uh, these men are so good and 
and doing so much service that um, whether it's to the sick or outreach to the poor and uh, just a lot of hidden works that are helping to build up the church. Very good. All right, last one. St. John Paul II. Uh, well, since he's my hero and I have the greatest admiration, I would say underrated. Um in the sense that some of his teaching hasn't been disseminated enough. Mm. You know, we've talked about theology of the body. I would want some of that that, and, and some of his other rich teachings to be uh, better and more widely known. So in that sense, I would say underrated, although I think he's greatly loved and, and venerated uh, yeah. by by the uh, not only our Catholic people, but many others. Sure. All right. Well, that was fun. Thank you for humoring me with that. And if people have any questions for Bishop, you can use the Holy Cross College text line, which is 260-436-9598. And before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.